Okay, I'm just going to uh, welcome you. Stand here for a second and then sit down if you want. Just stand here so I can welcome you. I think so. Can you hear me? Hi, folks. We're going to get started. Hi, so we could, um, if we could get your attention, we have, a, we have a, a lot to do in this session, so we're already uh, a couple of minutes behind, but we'll catch up. Uh, I wanted to just uh, welcome all of you here and introduce myself. I'm Hugh Joseph from Tufts University, and this is Mark Winnie from many places, but including John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. I also want to uh, recognize our development team. The first four, Joanne Burke, Ricardo, Carlos, Sarah Burkhart and Kelly Kogan are in the room, and they're going to be resource people during the exercise. So if you have questions about what we're doing or how to do it, um, they'll be around, and we'll be around to help you. We're going to spend uh, most of the time, we're going to do some introductory remarks, myself and Mark, to kind of explain the context of what the workshop and the exercise is. Um, the, idea here is to focus on activities of end users and their communities on the food, a, a new model for food consumption than we're used to with supply chains. And then incorporating food citizenship to go along with the theme of the whole meeting, okay? And then you're gonna spend the, most of the rest of the time developing guidelines and recommendations that reflect both of these components. So get ready, get your pens out, there's worksheets on the table, we'll be referring to them, and, um, and we'll get going from here. So I just wanted to recognize that it was, I don't know, 37 years ago that sustainable diets as a construct or a concept was introduced uh, by Joan Gussow and Kate Clancy, and I think most of you are familiar with those and with sustainable diets. So I'm not gonna go into great detail about it except in the context of the fact that uh, they were done in, in reference to the dietary guidelines, which had just started to be put out at that time. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to do some more broadening of the dietary guidelines than, uh, than have been coming out since then. And they made the case for broadening it to include sustainability as they saw it. Uh, they mentioned environmental, economic, and agricultural dimensions in particular. Okay. So, but there were limitations, there are limitations to this framing, because um, it fo focuses mostly on what to eat, okay? So, and because food themselves, they're not really healthy. It's us who are trying to get, be healthy by what we eat and promote sustainability by what we eat, but foods themselves don't have sustainability. They don't, they're, they're not animate, they're just foods. Uh, so, sustainability, addresses social, environmental, culture, economic concerns across the whole food system. So as such, what we're talking about here is sustainability of, as a systems part of the food systems idea. Okay, so you put food together with systems and you end up with food systems. And that's, it's fairly simple, but if you just take one and you don't have the other, you don't have what we commonly call a food system. And today, we're gonna to focus on this systems idea and not on the food, because we spent a lot of time with sustainable diets talking about food, so we're gonna to try to work around expanding that whole idea. And so, if you look at this idea, food itself 
what we eat as, uh, as meals or as diets at this end starts as crops and animals, and then through manufacturing and processing, it becomes prepared goods, formulations, processed food, and then provisions or groceries, and then it ends up on our plates. Okay? So that's just food. Okay? So there's, there's a limitation to just talking about what to eat. Um, and what they did is they re referenced it, their idea to sustainable agriculture because at that time, sustainable agriculture was big. It was really emerging and it remains the only sector of the whole food supply chain that has really evolved a whole com uh, sustainability context to it. It's really interesting that, that it hasn't expanded much beyond that. Today we're going to try and do a little work on the, the other end of it. Okay. So you're all probably familiar with this um, famous adage by Wendell Berry, eating is an agricultural act. But imagine if it was just in terms of food, diets are an agricultural product. It, you know, it doesn't quite resonate. And that's because this is an activity. He's talking about agriculture. Agriculture is not food. It is not just farm products. It's, it's, it's the practice of farming, okay? So it's like saying, that, um, that cars are transportation systems rather than the inverse. Okay, what we're talking about is food systems, transportation systems, however you want to talk about it. And it's more than the single product for which they are designed to be serving. Okay, so in this definition by the HLPE that many of you are probably familiar with, um, it gathers environment, people, inputs, processes, infrastructure, institutions, etc. And uh, as they relate to all these different stages of the food supply chain, okay, so that's where sustainability is centered, not particularly in or just in the foods itself. Um, but what has happened with sustainable diets is the question of who's left out of this su supply chain. So here we have the consumer at this end, that's all of us, but we have the farming here and the processing and the packaging and all that, and somehow, what happens at the consumption end seems to be rather neglected in sustainable diets, and a lot of it, as you'll see, is centered in sustainable agriculture. So I've sorted sustainable agriculture. There's millions of different definitions and representations of it, agroecology being the most active and ebullient of them at the, common, at the current time. But it includes the places where it takes, where it happens, the farmers and farm workers who do it, the products they produce, the different perspectives and philosophies under which they carry out their farming and how they do that in terms of it's either organic or it's an industrial model, all the kinds of sustainability problems, especially environmental, that evolve from all of those practices, not from the foods themselves, but from the way that food is produced. So when we go to the shop, to shop, we say, well, where did this food come from? Or how was it produced? Or what about the treatment of farm workers? And all those different kinds of questions. Uh, and that's what, that's what we're looking at here. And then there are the policies around that, the policies that help to regulate how farming is to try and make it safe or more productive or more economic or whatever. But you can, it's a kind of a, a pee, 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 type of production system, and we'll come back to it and see that we can apply that same thing at the consumption end, okay? So what's not currently represented by sustainable diets 
is this, is this end product. In fact, sustainability in sustainable diets doesn't even talk about healthy, health and nutrition. I find that incredibly curious. Like those of you familiar with the last time they were pushed in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans is 2015, and they wanted to add sustainability to dietary guidelines, okay, as if like health and nutrition were not part of that definition. And it's that model that persists today in the evolution of sustainability in dietary guidelines across the world. I don't understand why they are or are not integrated, but that's a limitation in my view. And the consumption factors that go around the whole of diets is also sort of limited. So this whole end user model, the consumer consumption model, it needs some more work. So you take that same idea here around um, around sustainable agriculture and you transform it or transfer it over to sustainable food consumption. So you, again, you have the players, that's, that's the eaters, that's us, those people who, who eat every day. I think most people in this room do. And the places, in this case, what we're specifically focused on are the household, the individuals and their households and their communities, okay? There's a broader area, but right now we're focused where consumption actually is, is focused in terms of where people uh, act, act it out and, and do their shopping and eating and so on and so forth. Uh, there are the products and they're the principles and values that underlying and shape what, what we buy and what we do. And then these practices, which I'll come back to in a second, and the policies, which we're also gonna talk about today. Okay, so there are three core activity categories beyond food itself. So when you, we think about sustainable diets, again, people say buy this or don't buy that and use these criteria. Well, we don't wanna talk about or center ourselves on that because a whole lot of stuff has been done on that. What seems to be limited or even missing are these three core activities of what you do when you eat at home, okay, or when you prepare food at home. You acquire food either by shopping or through other means, um, through food assistance or even gardening or growing your own food or emergency food. And you prepare food, you store the food, uh, you look up recipes, you cook the food or otherwise fix it up for, and then you store it and you do meal planning and so on and so forth. That all goes into the practices of eating. And the final stage is the consumption part of it. It's not just the actual meal, it's the consumption of it, including the serving and the eating and the cleaning up and the food disposal and things that go with it include stuff like manners and etiquette and all kinds of routines and rituals and things like that. Those are all activities which could, and you may have to decide as whether these have a role in sustainability, the same way as when all the various activities in farming uh, we apply as sustainable farming or sustainable agriculture or agroecology, what, what is about, about at this end of the rope that you consider to be sustainable? What fits into that model besides the foods you should choose because of what happens to them upstream? Okay. So what we're going to be doing is producing guidance, uh, guidelines or recommendations, however you want to name it, uh, for what we're calling sustainable food consumption. So this is, instead of sustainable diets, it's food consumption. It's a more active uh, aspect or framing of it than, than diet or just what you eat, okay? 
the way you're going to be writing these out is the same way as dietary guidelines are written and sustainable ones in the same way. Um, Gusto and Clancy back in 1986 didn't formulate guidelines. In fact, they didn't start to emerge until the 2000s, and then quite a few of them came out. And they're coming out a little bit more now, but you see them also uh, not in just food-based dietary guidelines, but in other types of, like Eat Lance and in other places that, that suggest you know, how you should eat as well as what you should eat. Um, but not that many food-based dietary guidelines around the world, like the, like the DGA, have incorporated sustainability, especially in their specific dietary guidelines. Like if you look at this um, study here by, uh, by that was just uh, came out at the end of last year, they looked at trends since 2000 in the production of sustainable guidelines in the F the FEDG, the food-based dietary guidelines around the world, uh, in 83 countries. And it's only in the last, you know, half a dozen years that they've started to emerge. But on top of that, there are two elements to that. You know, one is that they're not always in the guidelines themselves. They're often written in the subtext or the, uh, or the other materials that come along with it. So you don't always see it that way. And the other part of it is a lot of it still focuses solely on environmental sustainability, which isn't a bad thing, but it's, 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 it's rather narrow in the way you look at it. So in a study by Jones et al. in 2016, they looked at 113 sustainable diet studies to see what kinds of components were being analyzed in there. And if you look the way I've assorted these out here, uh, greenhouse gases, cl climate change, however you want to call it, uh, was the most visible in about two-thirds of the studies. Everything else was way down on the list, but environmental issues predominated, okay? Uh, dietary quality, for example, it was not even in a quarter of all of them. So bringing out the point again that nutrition doesn't seem to be considered a part of sustainability, and I'm not really, again, sure why. These other elements that we're looking at today, like social equity, policy, community, cultural appropriateness, they were hardly mentioned at all. So they're very strong bias towards environmentalism and, again, at the production end of things. However, there have been a few uh, FEDGs that have come out that have talked about sustainability beyond just environment, and I just go through a couple of them, um, like eat regularly uh, here in Brazil, uh, whenever possible in company, uh, choose minimally processed foods, develop and exercise cooking skills, make food and eating important in your life, Japan's dietary guidelines, enjoy your meals, reduce leftovers and waste. Um, those are things that all fit in at the household level or, or at the community level. And again, in Qatar, uh, reduce leftovers and waste, consume local foods, choose fresh homemade foods, conserve water, those kinds of things are emerging. Uh, there, there's still a fair environmental sort of bias to it, but that's, that's fine. But other aspects of food access, food preparation, and food consumption are, are in there. Other things we've seen and you're probably familiar with, including you know the hype in the last couple of years around uh, natural gas appliances, especially stoves, the methane they release and the air quality resulting, uh, food waste and disposal, plastics of course, recycling, composting, and food access and food security remain a dominant theme at the, at the household and community level. 
So this, uh, this alternative we're talking about takes uh, a kind of a parallel to that. And it, again, we're using these six alliterative uh, elements of it to, to put into place what you're going to be working on at your tables. Again, like with agriculture, I showed you these uh, different aspects of it. We take the same idea and we transfer it to food consumption. And we, we're going to look at players, uh, the household places, the residential habitats, uh, socio-cultural philosophies, which are the principles, the planning, for example, having literacy. We're leaving products out, food choices themselves in this exercise. And the practices are the, and the policies are the main focus for us today. Okay, so in your handout, which you can look at, um, you'll see these different categories, and they're all sorted out in those, so I'm not going to go through them right here. We're going to come back to that. And I'm going to wrap up with, the, finally, that um, these are the three categories, again, that we're going to be thinking about in terms of what is the aspects, the active aspects of food consumption. It's acquisition, preparation, and food consumption, okay? So we'll come back, uh, we'll just do some quick instructions at the end, but uh, Mark, you're going to come and give a few uh, perspectives on food citizenship and how that's going to fit into this as well. We need to... Um... Thanks, you. I got 14 minutes and 53 seconds, shot clock here. Okay, uh, I'm Mark Winnie, and uh, I want to thank you for making me a part of this session and, and thank this great team we had working on this. Um, you know, these ideas are very much a work in progress, and um, you know, sustainability is still something we're trying to get our arms around and figure out how to put into practice. I'm taking on this food citizenship part, partly because that's the work that I've done throughout my entire life, running nonprofit organizations, being act, doing food advocacy, and being very engaged in public policy, which I found more often than not is the best way to engage or to express yourself as a food citizen. Um, I will start off, though, by, by plugging my book, because my, my I do write. Um, when I get tired of doing all the work and so forth, I write about it. So I, my most recent book, Food Town USA, is available today for $10 only. What a deal. So uh, take advantage. We take all forms of payment, uh, credit cards, cash, check, negotiable securities, semi-precious jewelry, anything you have. Good shoes even have been offered in various times. So, Happy, and I'm also happy to sign the book, too, which immediately adds 10 cents in value to the book. So that's that. Are they physically here, Bob? What? Are they physically here? They're right there. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's uh, Teresa who's helping out today. Thank you very much, Teresa. So I wanted to figure out where do I start with the idea of food citizenship? <clears throat> Uh, I, I always like to have some foundation, some base. I want to go back as far as I can to think about the idea of, you know, any idea. And I, I, I went back to the Bible, but I really couldn't find anything about food citizenship. There's, it seemed like this guy, Jesus, was always the one in charge and making things happen. And that, that wasn't working for me. So I went to the Japanese Buddhist constitution, which I know you are all intimately familiar with. And I've, I really like this statement that decisions on important matters should not be made by one person alone. I mean, to me, that's the essence of citizenship, you know, that we are going to participate as a group in making the important decisions, i.e. food. 
Uh, if, if Japan is too far away, I turned, I found some guidance more recently, um, just in the last 30 years or so from Toronto, Canada. And I particularly liked some of their thoughts on this, which are that uh, f few other systems touch people's daily lives as intimately as food. Um, and to me, that really, again, makes an argument for us to be active as individuals and citizens in our food supply, in our food system, you know, beyond just simply thinking about the act of consumption. And a lot of this is derived from what we have today for a food system, the dominant food system or the industrial food system or any of a number long list of pejoratives and expletives that describe uh, the food we eat. Uh, that food too often is treated as a commodity. Uh, we exist only in a marketplace um, and that we are no more than consumers. I like to think we're much more than that and that we have a reason and the need to participate. And that in fact, the only way that we can sort of push back against this sort of dominant food system is to act as food citizens and to engage in that process. Um, you know, in fact, public policy is the only countervailing force other than, you know, acts of consumption, uh, the countervailing force to the overall dominant food system, which is telling us what to do, again, treating food as a commodity and treating us as no more than consumers. So that's why over the years during my work, uh, even though I was very actively engaged in uh, developing a number, numerous number of, of food projects and activities on and on and on again, I really found I had to turn to public policy in order to make a big enough difference to really try to establish some alternative to the dominant food system. Um, so again, with some guidance from our, our Canadian friends, uh, I can't, we came up with some of these ideas, which I think were sort of, when you're making a choice, you know, when you're thinking about what to support and how to act, here are some thoughts that I'd ask you to consider. Um, you know, I think we all want to support charitable food activities, and I know we all do in some way or another. It's very important. But we also want to be thinking about how those activities or those organizations are also active in, uh, as citizens or promoting citizenship or in public policy. I have two examples from my home, one from my home in uh, New Mexico, our food depot, which is our food bank, uh, just engaged, very active, does typical food bank work, but really got involved in a living wage campaign so that we can get to some of the underlying causes of hunger, uh, food, dis you know, uh, income and wealth disparity, among other things. So they, I'm going to support them because they are also doing public policy work. Uh, the Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services I'd learned about over the last year or so in the context of some of their work with Ukraine. And, uh, you know, they are doing typical refugee kinds of assistance, very important, of course. But they're also testifying before Congress to try to reform immigration laws in this country, which is desperately needed. So I think that, you know, again, if you're thinking about who you're supporting and what they're doing, and they're sort of cons normally considered a typical charity, well, th look again and see if they're also doing that kind of, you know, that real backbone work of uh, fighting for, you know, policy changes and addressing the underlying causes of the problems that they need that charity for. Uh, health professionals, I want you to engage, engage directly in advocacy. Don't sit back and just be 
a nice looking professional. <laughs> Go out and actually get your, make, you challenge the, pe the decision makers and uh, let them know what's going on and what changes need to be made. Build the capacity of consumers and clients. Also this idea of multiple interventions and being food system oriented. You know, we all have our sort of piece of the food system, the project or the activities or the things that we do. But let's also be thinking about, you know, that how this big thing we call a food system connects and that, you know, the problems are complex and we often need to do many things to address a single problem. You know, no single intervention in most cases is enough to resolve that problem. We need to be multi-intervention oriented. And then I think lastly is to take a look at what we as individuals can do, um, you know, it, through our acts of consumption. You know, I, I probably drive people nuts when I go shopping, just like many of you do, and you're like always looking at the packages and reading all the labels. And if I took my children shopping and they, oh, dad, I don't want to hear another philosophical diatribe about why you should buy this cereal. Uh, but in fact, you know, I like to have some information beyond simply, say, the nutritional content of the product. So I'm, you know, I'm shopping at a farmer's market because I want to support local farmers, and I believe that promotes sustainability, among other things. I may want to join a CSA. You're familiar with a lot of, I, you may know of the work of Equal Exchange, a fair, one of the better fair trade organizations out there. Uh, they really are looking at a whole range of issues. Now, here, this one you may not be familiar with, it's called Sitka Salmon Shares. Um, you're buying, in this case, you're buying fish from fishermen from Alaska, for the most part, who are organized in a company that they all own. Small fishermen using uh, environmentally approved or sustainably approved uh, fishing uh, methods. And that the waters of Alaska are the best regulated fisheries in the world. In fact, they are. There's a lot of sort of maybe some contention here and there about parts of that, but in fact, that's what it is. I had the opportunity to go to Sitka, Alaska and learn a lot more about it. Uh, that is why I decided to start buying this product from them because I had a sense of that they were doing the right thing that they, and that there was a big policy component involved and there was a lot of citizenship being expressed through the fishermen through the native Alaskan population as well who are participating in different forms throughout that process. Um, so it's just a way of trying to think, how do I take the consumer choices I make, I need to be looking above the plate to be looking at the policies that have some implication for what, for how that food is produced, et cetera, et cetera. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip this one for now. Um, going to go to a couple of more sort of direct illustrations. Um, I think, you know, I, I use farmer's markets because it's an e easy example perhaps, but, um, you know, I shop there, you know, as I said, because I want to be a, I want to be a good consumer. I want to, you know, get high quality food. I feel that, you know, I want to support locally produced, uh, you know, locally, I want to buy locally produced food. But as a consumer, with a sort of slowly emerging citizen sensibility, I also want to think about how to, well, maybe what, what, why is this farmer's market located in this place? And maybe I want to get that farmer's market uh, located in a place that serves more people in my community, that it's also serving sort of the lower income areas more effectively than some big central popular 
sometimes tourist-oriented market. Um, so then I'm starting to look at local ordinances, local rules and regulations, uh, zoning, and so forth. So I'm becoming a little bit more aware as a citizen about what goes into, say, the siting of a farmer's market. But if I really want to go more deeply into this subject, and I want to be what I'm calling a full-on food citizen, I'm going to work with others to ensure that, that those markets are affordable and accessible to everybody. And that's going to take me into sort of a, another realm of, of citizenship work, often much more engaged in public policy. Let me illustrate this a little further. Um, I, like, I do like this quote, left to themselves, economic forces do not work out for the best, except for the most powerful. Another Canadian, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist. In, public policy is the only way we can balance the marketplace. We can fight back against the dominant food system. And when we look again at farmers markets, uh, you know, the attempts that we've been made over the years, uh, Hugh and I both were working on setting up WIC farmers market programs uh, in the mid-1980s. Um, that was at least 100 years ago. And you know, this was one of the very first efforts to try to make sure that markets were available to, to people who were nutritionally vulnerable. Uh, that expanded and kept diversifying to seniors, uh, to veggie, the veggie prescription programs, to SNAP incentives, uh, programs like Finney, which is sort of the precursor to GUSNIP. You may be, I'm certain you're familiar with most of these, but it was many different ways that we began to engage public policy, uh, particularly at a national level, in order to make sure that farmers markets and locally grown food and local food systems were be, being used and more accessible and responding to the communities that needed them the most. I use one little example down here at the bottom, uh, which is my own, one of my Santa Fe markets, was that uh, you know, we, had to, we had to develop a new site that was more accessible to uh, the low-income community, and that, re that required work that was being done, policy work and citizenship work, being done at the local level to find a good site. We had to work with the policies of a private institution, in this, in this case a healthcare organization, to provide both a site and money to support much of the work of that market. Um, we then actually established a market that had at one point had six different incentive programs operating. Some of them federally financed, some of them um, financed by the state, and some of them were private and local. So you'll find that kind of mix, in other words, of policy, different levels of government, and sometimes public and private partnerships in order to make sure that a, a particular process, uh, food project is ex both accessible, affordable, and, and equitable. Um, just a quick look at policy itself. You know, I use that term a lot, but it, if it's really important if you're going to get into food, be a food citizen, to be thinking about what level of government you might be working at. And you really do have to spend time learning about how government works. I've, I continue to, I feel like I'm a, a perpetual student of government. And, um, you know, if I'm going to be looking at how to set up a farmer's market, I need to have local governance 
engaged. If I need money, I'm going to probably be going to the state. Uh, if I need to be making, you know, I need looking for bigger projects, bigger amounts of money, uh, major, even systemic changes in the way that food assistance programs work, I need to be looking at the federal government. Uh, so, and then here we just on the left, there's a whole kind of list of where we do a lot of this work. I do say one thing about policy that from what I've learned, and it's, you know, people shouldn't be frightened by it. Uh, you are a citizen, you have, you elect people, uh, you vote for them, you have the right to show up and have your voice heard. And a lot of the work isn't really about like changing big laws or having like, you know, making, ma having major campaigns, though that stuff does happen. It's kind of the small P of policy. You know, that's that part of just working with the administrative or bureaucracies of different levels of government. It's also very much about relationship building. As a citizen, you should be building a relationship with members of your city council, of city government, state legislature, state government. It's those relationships that often, more times than not, lead to major, to, to some really good policy wins. Uh, one way to really express this and to encapsulate it is to, um, is to work with the Food Policy Council. Uh, how many of you are involved in, a, in the Food Policy Council anyway? It'll show of hands, if any connection at all. Okay, just a few of you. Um, but this is really the best way to get involved. Uh, when we started out, uh, the, the Food Policy Council that I organized in Hartford, Connecticut, <clears throat> about um, somewhere in the 1990s, it was this actually the second longest operating food policy council in the country now. Today there are over 300 across the country. About 30 of them or so are uh, state uh, food policy councils. Uh, you can learn more about them at uh, the Johns Hopkins site, foodpolicynetworks.org, food and they have all kinds of information, foodpolicynetworks.org, all kinds of information about food policy councils, including where they are and everything you want to know about them. So they're absolutely a good way to uh, you know, make sure that you have a, a place to sit and a voice. And the last thing I'll say about this is even with all this knowledge you gather about being a food citizen or working on food policy, Sometimes you just got to ask, and then you got to ask again and ask again. In other words, you have to be persistent. You have to keep showing up. You know, when I first did this, I came to, the, I went to the mayor of Hartford, and I said, we need to start a food policy council. And he told me I was completely out of my mind. He had no idea what I was talking about. A few years later, we got a food policy council. We asked the Department of Agriculture for a few bucks to start a WIC farmer's market program. At the time, we had 10 farmer's markets in the state. Today, we have 130. So you just got to keep asking, and you got to keep pushing. And all the growth that has taken place over the last 30 to 40 years is a result of that kind of persistence and showing up and having your voice heard and being a good food citizen. So that's it. Thank you. Okay, um, we're going to start the transition. If you still have ideas to write, 
uh, feel free to continue. But if I can have your attention for just a second, everybody. Um, the idea of the team list is for you to kind of look at each of your own lists and come up with a set of guidelines or recommendations that you will all agree on. Um, again, um, the list can be as long as you want, but there's room for 12. We asked for at least eight or 10 uh, that we'd like you to do. And you know, part of that is sort of to encourage discussion about what something means to either be citizenship or discussion or sustainability or both. Uh, again, write legibly because um, we want to record them. We, we suggest one person be the scribe, okay, and then copies what uh, everybody else agrees to, and then we'll go from there. If you have any strategic questions, just let us know we're around. Thank you. Hi, folks. We wanted to um, see if we could get the last few minutes here of this session to hear from every one of the tables. Uh, a couple of the suggestions and guidelines that you've come up with. Any thoughts that go along with it? So. There's enough time to to do that if we uh, hear one or two from each table. I wanted to mention that um, that there's a we we would like you to leave both your individual and team collections uh, lists with us so we can aggregate them. We're going to compile them and we're going to make them available to all of you along with our slides. So those of you who wanted them, we just have to uh, find some uh, enough time uh, to compile them all. But we appreciate it that you wrote them all out well. You can finish up where you want. But if uh, somebody would like to uh, start and give us one or two of the th thoughts you had or suggestions you had, maybe we'll start. Any, any one table want to get started? And you can come up. There is a mic, so it would be easier, since they're recording this, if you come up to the mic and speak. So the person who is a, who is a scribe might want to come up and uh, read a couple of them. Thank you. Well, we had a lot of ideas in our group, but we only got to write down five. 
Um, so one, focusing on preventing waste, so education around like telling individuals to use all parts of the food or like proper storage methods. Maybe redirecting food waste, so like more composting on the household level and eventually making like a municipal compost system. Reducing food packaging, so like trying to buy food in minimal packaging, so maybe going to like bulk buy shops or reuse, using like a reusable container if you're getting like deli meats or cheeses. Um, supporting local restaurants that utilize compostable packaging and then also finding a way to compile resources in the community. So maybe you have like a community-led forum where you compile resources of like local restaurants that focuses on like farm to table or maybe just best practices in general of how you are sustainable in your household just to kind of have them engage with each other and share those ideas. Thank you. Uh, we talked a lot. Uh, we had a lot of great ideas, but two that stood out to us. Uh, the first was making recipes available in various yields so that if you have an older individual cooking for one versus a mom cooking for herself and two children versus someone cooking for a large family, they would be able to more easily utilize recipes and making sure that some of the recipes you make available are community developed so that they represent the community from which they come. Uh, and then we talked about similar to minimal packaging, just being mindful and building awareness around the use of convenience foods versus minimally packaged and processed foods, recognizing that at times we may all need to utilize a convenience food and not beat ourselves up over it because we're all busy and recognizing that the families we serve may also be in that same space. But if we can build a mindfulness and awareness about when can I make that different choice or when can I make my utilization of convenience foods the exception and not the rule, then we could be informed and empowered food citizens uh, just by building mindfulness and awareness about our behaviors. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you had your hand up. Yes. All right, so our group, um, we talked about uh, several different things, but I think one of the ones that we really liked was organizing community-led cooking classes and healthy meal prep sessions, um, really emphasizing the farm to school approach as well within this um, intervention. Um, and what's cool about that is that you're able to tailor it particularly to the community and so maybe capitalizing on a particular cultural holiday and finding you know healthy alternatives to different sweets or snacks that's usually eaten during that holiday and you know showing there are other healthier alternatives that you can consume that still help celebrate that special you know, holiday. So that's like an example we were talking about. Um, we also were, this one kind of ties into it, educating individuals on culturally significant practices, recipes, and production avenues. Um, so really highlighting both the theoretical and practical. Um, and then in terms of food waste, researching alternate methods of food redistribution to mitigate food waste. Um, so this could look like several different things depending on the institution that community members are looking to uh, support. Um, and then encouraging creation and participation in more community and homestead gardens, pretty self-explanatory. And then one of ours was not really locally rooted, but I think it does involve a big community presence in order to do um, you know, in order to make a change in this area, and that's dismantling racially motivated and discriminatory practices, such as supermarket redlining. Um, and those, uh, although it is a systemic problem, it does require um, community members to band together in order to, 
even voice that this is an issue because sometimes it gets overlooked. So those are our ideas. So I agree. I mean, so we have um, covered very much uh, strategies very related to what you all said. But I just want to add two uh, ones that really stands out. One is to reduce food waste by having better policy related to um, expiration dates information, like whether it should be used by, sell by, best buy, all those things, so that we can reduce food waste. And then also, uh, instead of STEM, we should now focus on STEAM for the school curriculum, so having agriculture along with uh, science and technology for uh, our youth to also consider agriculture as a career um, uh, to improve the local food system. And then also very much related to what you all said, uh, county level funding for community or school-based gardens and also um, funding towards creating community centers so that people can come together for a potluck or for the community lunches and bringing um, the local support system, strengthening that first before going out, uh, waiting for others to help. So that's, yeah. Many of the guidelines we've um, put together have already been shared, but a couple that focus a little differently um, is and kind of goes off what was just said, but engage your neighbors in food conversations and discussions. That's probably a pretty easy one um, and could have a great impact on a lot of the other things that have been mentioned. Um, and then something that connects more in the family um, center, prioritize education or as I would say, enculturation um, of knowledge and skills that allow family members to share in the food preparation and food making tasks. Anybody else like to share? Thanks. Um, we had just a couple more that we would add here as well. One is to be mindful or aware of the experience of eating. Um, and then another would be to uh, innovate solutions and partnerships or, and partner widely in support of the food system, um, thinking a little more along the food citizenship guidelines. Hi, so our group talked about a lot, but the one thing I would like to highlight, and I invite my team to share more if they'd like, is uh, the C's, uh, create and celebrate a culture of cooking. <laughs> um, whether it be through like building holidays around cooking, like a national cooking day or a monthly cooking day, right? Um, just celebrate wherever you can this uh, willingness and ability to learn more about cooking and continue cooking as much as we can. Anything else you'd like to? You good? Thank you. Anybody else like to share? A lot of great things here. I hope everybody wrote them down on their papers, okay? Make sure it's written down so we have that great info. 
Okay, here and then over here. Um, I just wanted to add one more, which is um, looking at, and I don't know what the authority is, maybe it's Department of Energy or Transportation or something, but working on uh, developing regulations about prioritizing the use of our limited fossil fuel supply that we have left. So I'm thinking about when I see an 18-wheeler with Coca-Cola written on the side and it's using fossil fuels to truck basically sugar water, which is not great for health, and it's not great for health to burn the fuels. I think, can we think of a way to develop some regulations to prioritize the use of fossil fuels for, in the food system, transporting nutrient-dense foods and drier nutrient-dense foods? So beans and grains, pulses, fruits and vegetables kind of lower on the list because they're heavily laden with water. But looking at what is the fuel efficiency for quality and nutrient density. Thank you so much. Um, so our group kind of went um, family, like individuals, and then also community. Uh, so for the fam or individual level, um, we were pretty specific. Meal plan and shop intentionally. Be creative with your food leftovers. Building relationships with your neighbors so that you can share foods. Um, and then learn to use food scraps to make stock. And then for a more community-based um, recommendation, we went with food pantries should work with local restaurants and retail shops. Sorry. <laughs> to reduce food waste and increase the variety of foods. Thank you. One thing um, I just wanted to point out also, and that was mentioned earlier, is that uh, I don't consider industrial eating to be compatible with sustainability and food consumption that uh, come up with this idea of ultra-convenience that combines eating highly processed foods and most of it that comes from big food and there's a disproportionate percentage of our diets now that comes from highly processed or ultra-processed foods and then going out and getting it and not engaging in it. If that's the case, you have no control over how your food is produced or where it comes from or any of the ingredients in it, you know, that you want to have in or don't, didn't want to have in. So it's that lack of agency, that lack of engagement that comes from industrial eating. And so if you want to eat a healthy diet, I think you have to really eat at home uh, or, or equivalent. And people say, well, we're eating, we're spending half our money uh, eating out. Well, but that we're not eating half our food out. We're just spending a lot of money to eat a little bit of food. So we still do make most of our food at home. I think there's one more share-out, okay. and we just have one final statement. Go ahead. Yeah, it's actually not a share-out. It's more of a question that we discussed in our uh, table, and that is that I think one of the things we are struggling with is what is the definition of sustainable so that when somebody goes and buys something, there's not a label I can read a label, nutrition facts, and I can say, yes, no, I'm not going to buy that because it's healthy or unhealthy. Or I can stay to minimally processed or unprocessed. But still, even if I'm buying a fruit or vegetable, completely unprocessed, I have no idea if it's grown locally. I don't know how the farm workers were treated. I don't know how much water it takes. I don't know where. So 
anyways, that's just a request that we need to figure out how to um, measure what is a sustainably grown product and then how to communicate that even to ourselves. Is there any, any more, Ricardo? I don't see any more hands up, no. Okay. Um, for those of you who are able or willing and able to um, okay. send these to us uh, on a computer when you get to some uh, uh, internet and with laptop, any, any time, it doesn't have to be immediately or today, take a photo of the master list with you so you can leave the list on the table. And that's the best way, I think, to do it so that you don't have to take it with you. Bob, what? Okay. No. Sure, but let me. Uh, I I just want to some um, wrap up by thinking, by thanking the team that uh, Mark and I have, and I especially worked with, uh, who are here today, especially Joanne, Ricardo, Sarah, and Kelly, who have been around the room and Mim Seidel and Diane Smith, some of you know or don't know, but we spent better part of the past year trying to figure this out, and we will continue to do so. And under, underlying this is the still dream I have that SNEB can develop the next set of sustainable dietary or food consumption guidelines. But until we have figured out what sustainability is and, and things like that, you know, we don't want to just regurgitate another bunch of things. It's these types of questions we ask before we can just say, yeah, this is how we should go forward. So this is part of that whole continuing effort to figure out, does it make sense for this organization maybe to go forward and promulgate sustainable uh, dietary or food consumption guidelines? Thanks, Ricardo. Thanks so much to you and Mark for leading this presentation. And I just wanted to do a quick plug because this has been put together by um, the Sustainable Food Systems Group. If anyone is keen and passionate, which I'm sure you all are, because there's been some great thoughts, um, we have our division meeting at 11 o'clock tomorrow. So we would love to see you there if you would like to come and engage in more conversations or get involved um, as well. So hopefully we'll see a few more faces there. 11 o'clock tomorrow. I can't remember the room, sorry, but you can find it on the app, hopefully, or find one of us and we'll work that out. But thank you all again for, for coming.